this week on the Backtable podcast. I mean, we know that there are a lot of devices coming out, you know, for below the knee and how this particular device will be placed among all the other devices kind of would be an interesting question and, and a point of debate among all our endovascular operators. But I can tell you that irrespective, I have a strong feeling that the uh, laser will continue to be an important uh, treatment as a vessel prepping device, uh, whether on its own as a modality of treatment, you know, followed by adjunctive balloon angioplasty, or as a vessel prepping device prior to some important technology that we are seeing right now, like the bioabsorbable stents, which have shown some significant improvement compared to plain old balloon angioplasty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. A patient with PAD can show symptoms in a variety of ways. This presents unique challenges when choosing a treatment option that is effective in improving outcomes across a broad spectrum of arterial disease. Angiodynamics Orient system changes everything. Using cutting edge laser tech that can aspirate anywhere, featuring a 355 nanometer wavelength and 25 nanosecond pulse width, the Orient system conquers disease with science in a way no other platform does. With the most versatile laser on the market, the Orient system is able to treat PAD, ISR, CLI, and ALI, whether it's above the knee or below the knee. Different from most lasers, the RN system's 3.5 photon energy allows it to spare the vessel wall while attacking lesions. This safety profiles while leading interventionalists have chosen the RN system to treat more than 25,000 patients over the last two years and deliver improved quality of limbs and lives. Visit rn-system.com to learn more. And now back to the show. Today, we got another great episode. We're going to be discussing the status of laser atherectomy in the current era of BTK CLI disease and talking about experiences in adopting and studying this technology with Dr. Nicholas Shamas. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm really happy to be a guest on your podcast. Thank you, Nicholas. And I'm very happy to have Sam Safo from Baylor Heart Hospital join me as a co-host. Welcome back, Sam. Thank you for having me again. So Nicholas, can you tell us a little bit about briefly where you trained, where you're at, and what your practice looks like? Yes, uh, it's been uh, quite some time now, almost uh, 29 years since my interventional fellowship training. I was originally uh, trained in internal medicine and interventional cardiology at the University of Iowa, and in general cardiology at the University of Rochester Medical Center, Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York. My endovascular training, however, in PAD really was on the job. Early after my fellowship, you know, I kind of became interested in endovascular, uh, peripheral vascular procedures, both venous and arterial. And I have attended many courses from the Oshner Clinic to Prairie Cardiovascular and other programs that were interested at the time in teaching uh, junior faculty in uh, peripheral vascular disease. I was uh, really lucky also to have a senior partner fully trained in PAD and who helped in uh, my early procedures and really accelerated my learning experience. I think things became a lot more interesting after I established the Midwest Cardiovascular Research Foundation over 20 years ago, and we started doing many clinical trials, including IDE studies and proof-of-concept studies that really got me involved in state-of-the-art endovascular treatments of PED, and that really transformed my practice completely into a full research, education, and clinical care practice for PED patients. 
Eventually, you know, I became board certified in vascular and endovascular medicine by the Vascular Society of Medicine. Currently, I'm practicing at Cardiovascular Medicine in Davenport, Iowa, which is a part of Cardiovascular Associate of America. And my practice has recently shifted completely to vascular and endovascular treatment of the PBD patients. Fantastic. Thank you for that intro. Let's jump right into the topic for today. I know that basically we're going to be discussing laser for BTK CLI disease, but can you tell us part of the reason maybe why you decided to study laser? Can you tell us about the limitations of current treatments for infrapopoteal disease, for example, balloon angioplasty, and what was it about laser that led you to want to study it further? Yeah, that's a great question. As we know, infrapopliteal arterial interventions can be quite challenging because of the nature of the disease, a high rate of total occlusions and long lesions and uh, certainly diffuse disease. And I think more importantly is the degree of calcium you know, that we see in infrapopliteal vessels, especially medial calcinosis. So angioplasty carries a high rate of dissections and recoil and clearly a higher residual narrowing. There are also uh, significant comorbidities in the patients with critical limb ischemia, including diabetes and kidney disease. So a very high rate of amputation and cardiovascular mortality is seen in these patients. So when you look at the one-year patency with balloon angioplasty only, it's generally about 60 to 65%. Despite you know, all the efforts that we have, we have not made a whole lot of advancement in this till recently. And surprisingly, despite even suboptimal results, we still see that limb salvage is still significant and higher than the historic controls for medical management. But still, as I said, angioplasty is still far from ideal treatment given the nature of the disease that we are treating, and especially in that critical limb ischemia patients, and we need to continue developing more research to improve our outcomes. So we have been involved in the finding some therapies for critical limb ischemia for really many years. And I still remember when I was the national PI on the calcium 360 trial, when the first randomized trial of orbit lathorectomy versus angioplasty was done in critical limb ischemia. This was a multi-center prospective study. It was a relatively small study, but showed a significant improvement in the acute procedural results. We have seen less dissections. We've seen improvement in vessel compliance and clearly less bailout stenting. Bottom line is the study was small, but it was randomized, and it was uh, an interesting study that said, well, we could do better than just balloon angioplasty. So that's how we also got interested in the laser for below-the-knee intervention. And I want to mention specifically the Orient laser that we've done quite a bit of research on, and that's from Angiodynamics. You know, we were involved in the IDE study that led to the Orient approval in the U.S., and also the prospective multi-center registries, the Pathfinder 1 and Pathfinder 2. When we did those registries, we did treat some infrapopliteal arteries, but the numbers were too small, and we needed definitely more knowledge to the safety and effectiveness you know, of this particular laser in the critical limb ischemia patients. We've known eczema laser you know, works in this setting and was effective in below-the-knee arteries, but there was clear differences between these two lasers that we felt maybe it will add an advantage to the Orient. Although as a disclaimer, I should mention that we have no randomized trials between these two devices that have been done so far. So truly, we do not know if one is better than the other, but we think the physics of the Orient offers quite a bit of advantages in that case. On that point, I just wanted you to kind of, before we get to your study results, can you tell the audience, like, how does laser atherectomy work? And like, what did you see were the advantages of that modality? Yes, it's an ablative device, mostly by evaporating the plaque, and it does have several properties. 
based on wavelength and pulse width that creates significant differences between laser devices. To give you an example, for instance, the Orion does have a longer wavelength, and that usually translates in a more rapid absorption of the laser light as it leaves the catheter tip, so reducing, for instance, the chance of thermal injury to the deeper layer of the artery. This is very important because it does spare the adventitia, and when it does that, it hopefully reduces restenosis and improved patency down the road. In fact, we know from the IDE study, the XPET, the O3 study, that the freedom from TLR was over 95% at six months, but with 60% of patients only had DCB. But in the Orion SCE study that we published from our own experience, we had an 83.7% at one year freedom from TLR. And again, about 77% of those patients had DCB. I have to say that the Orion also has a short pulse width, and that's really very important. It's about 10 to 25 nanoseconds. It does lead to a higher laser power, which is usually above the biological threshold, making that laser very effective in treating fibrocalcific and calcific lesions. And in fact, we've seen that that laser particularly is highly effective against calcium. So taking these properties into consideration and the pathology seen in the infrapopliteared arteries we believe that there are some physical properties to the laser that will allow one laser particularly to be maybe more effective in certain plaque morphology than others. We did actually tested this concept in the eye dissection Orion study, looking at deeper tear by IVIS, and we have demonstrated that, and this data is published, showing that we have significantly less adventitial injury in these patients. And in the subgroup analysis, pre-specified subgroup in the Orion below the knee study, also below the knee, we have demonstrated almost identical pattern with much lesser deeper tears in these vessels. So clearly, very effective modality and plaque removal. And based on the physics of the device itself, it does it in a slightly different way. So Nicholas, I mean, this is a really nice summary of the utilization of laser and your experience with laser. But you mentioned the other devices, atherectomy devices, we'll just focus on atherectomy devices that were studied in below the knee. Can you kind of summarize your experience with them and to the audience from a practical perspective, when do you use one versus the other? What would you choose a laser and which brand of laser versus orbital versus directional atherectomy? Yes. So as the disease tend to be quite diffuse below the knee and, and long lesions usually, and my go-to device prior to the Orion was the orbital atherectomy device. It used to work very nice in that setting. And as I said, our experience was built right from the beginning in that device with the calcium 360 study and clearly very effective, you know, in that setting. And the only thing is we notice is sometimes, you know, you get microembolization and some slow flow downstream and you have to do some additional pharmacologic treatment, you know, to improve the flow. I don't think we have a whole, I mean, we have large registries, no question about it, that shows it works really very nicely. So again, that was the beginning. And then as we moved in and we had the Axamer at one point in time, and we've used the Axamer quite a bit, but I limited the use of the Axamer usually to mostly fibrocalcific, fibrotic lesions, softer lesions. I did have a little bit of difficulty, you know, with the severe calcification with the Axamer itself. As the Aryan moved in and we start testing that device, we noticed that really it does work pretty much on most of the lesions that we have seen from calcific, including severe calcification as well as fibrocalcific and softer plaque. And it does really work very well, even in instant restenosis. And in fact, it's approved for that indication too. So we kind of, a lot of our work right now has shifted to actually developing more 
data and understanding to how that device really works at this point. Now, for directional atherectomy, I don't use it as uh, often in that situation below the knee just because of the diffuse and long nature of the disease and usually limit that just to a very focal eccentric lesions. Typically in that setting, it seems to work really well. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a nice summary. And the learning curve comparing to laser atherectomy versus orbital atherectomy, maybe from laser atherectomy, because basically it's, it's so easy to use. You don't need any mixing, any chemicals or drips where in the orbital atherectomy you do have to. Can you comment about your pioneer in the laser atherectomy? You've been on a lot of trials. What has been your experience with other operators who tried to learn this technology? Is it really as easy to adapt in a day-to-day practice or would you recommend them to have it more in a day-to-day practice? Yeah, that's a great question. The Aryan laser is very, very user-friendly device it can easily be incorporated into a CLI program. In fact, training can be really done on site by a clinical specialist. I mean, just having someone to go over the device and show you how to use it. There is, of course, some tips and tricks that a person would learn as uh, time goes by. And I don't believe the learning curve is steep by any means. In fact, probably five to 10 uh, cases would be more than sufficient for a person to become comfortable with that device. As you know, it can be done in an OBL setting as well as a hospital setting. It does not require any calibration in contrast to the eczema. There's no prolonged time for warning of that device, which is kind of really nice. There's no interaction with contrast dye, which is a huge advantage. So I believe really just learning the device itself, you know, knowing what the IFU label tells you about it, have the first few cases supervised and you're up and running. It's really not that complicated at all. It definitely can be incorporated very quickly into a CLI program. Yeah, I think it's a great summary comparing the two different laser because one of the uh, downfall of, of the regular laser we have is why a lot of people didn't use it is the initially used to be a longer period of time of warming up the device and, and now it's shorter, but still nonetheless, I think the contrast is a big deal. You comment about a fabric lesion or a calcified lesion. Is that based on angiogram or do you use your IVIS regularly and below the knee? What's your IVIS utilization below the knee? Yeah, so we are very high IVIS users below the knee. As you know, we've published several data on the importance of IVIS below the knee, particularly for vessel sizing and understanding plaque morphology as it guides your device size as well as uh, the choice of your device below the knee. And yes, IVIS is a very important tool for us. And I would say probably half, if not more, of our cases gets IVIS on a routine basis. So I think that's a very, very high use compared to the average use in the U.S., which is probably in that 5 to 10% range. But I think that's making a big difference for us, particularly with a heavy research program. So that to us is important. The IVIS have uh, really changed a lot of what we uh, do in terms of approaching lesions below the knee. Many times, you know, we change the device that we use. Many times we change the balloon size that we use. We understand dissections better. You know, we can tell much easier if a dissection is going to create a problem down the road when it has a higher degree of a flap, you know, exceeding 180 degree, for instance. Then we have a lower threshold of tacking those for a while, either by prolonged balloon inflations or even an intertack system. So there are many ways really of treating that vessel based on more precision imaging and precision imaging truly, and I'm a strong believer in this, it really does alter how you do things in the lab and how you improve your overall patient outcome. Sam, I was going to bring it back to the study. We pulled some audience members in the endovascular community, knowing that we were having you come on, Dr. Shamas, to talk about your study. There were some questions that some people had 
and just kind of going through the results by the questions. Can you tell us how did laser impact limb salvage in your study? Yes. Well, first of all, as you know, the REM below the knee study is an ongoing study. So we only have the acute procedural results at up to 30 days follow-up. We do expect the six-month and one-year follow-up to be, you know, early and mid of next year. So I can't tell you the long-term outcome, you know, based on that particular study, but I can tell you the safety outcome at 30 days. At that, we had literally no amputations at all at 30 days. But again, that's, that's not really sufficient to make a conclusive statement without the long-term outcome. So we have to wait to the long-term outcome. But again, the device from an acute standpoint led to a high success rate in treating the lesions and achieving a very low residual narrowing as a mean level with all the patients included in the study. We had only one perforation that was very mild that was sealed by just a prolonged inflation. There was one distal embolization despite one filter was used in the entire study, and that resolved without any sequelae. So from a safety standpoint, clearly, uh, we would say it is a very safe when we use it for below-the-knee complex disease. Mind you, I have to say that almost two-thirds of those uh, lesions were severely calcified as classified by the PACS classification. They were all grade 3 and 4 classification for severe calcium. So complex disease in a, a very high-risk population, almost 60% or so were with ulcers and the rest were resting limb pain. So this is a pure limb ischemia patient population. Yeah, those are pretty complicated patients. How are you guys planning to follow up those patients six months and one year? Is that based on a clinical outcomes, amputation, or are you guys following up with ultrasound as well? Yes. So we have the clinically driven target lesion revascularization is a very important, but the primary patency at six and 12 months will be defined by total occlusions and the target lesion with no clinically driven target lesion revascularization. You know, a lot of the kind of currently applied definition. We do have also primary patency going to be evaluated, not by just total occlusion, but also by a PSVR, which is going to be less or equal to 0.4. So we're looking at more restenotic disease as well as total occlusions, you know, when we evaluate primary patency. So actually more than 2.4, just going to be clear. We will be looking also at technical success. By the way, this is just to let you know, this is all quantitative vascular angiography for the assessment of the acute procedural results. And we do have a subgroup analysis for 20 patients pre-specified that all underwent intervascular ultrasound. So a core lab analysis of this is ongoing. In fact, we have the data now, but we'll be presenting this at an upcoming meeting early next year. But it's very, very reassuring, showing a very nice results uh, with plaque removal as well as an improvement in the minimum luminal area of, of those patients. Thank you for that. And just to back up a minute, you just presented this below the knee data at TCT recently, right? Correct. And again, to back up just for a minute, because I, I forget if we talked about it at the very beginning, but can you just briefly describe what were the endpoints in the study? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about this study so people know what we're talking about here. So the REM below the knee study is a prospective multi-center trial. It was a single arm. It was sponsored by the Midwest Cardiovascular Research Foundation with an unrestricted grant from Angiodynamics. It's investigator initiated, as I said, is still ongoing. We had three sites in Florida and one site in Iowa, our site. And enrollment completed, 30-day data is completed. And I know we are almost done with the six-month follow-up data, so the data will be coming up pretty soon. So the main objective of the study is to observe the treatment effect of the Orion laser in treating the infrapopliteal disease in patients with chronic threatening limb ischemia. And as I said, 20 of those patients included also had IVIS, uh, so we'll have that IVIS subgroup too. 
So to get into the study, you have to have a Rutherford Becker 4 and 5, and the disease have to be located in that P3 segment of the popliteal artery down to the ankle joint. Reference diameter needed to be between 1.5 to 4.5 millimeter. And by far, the majority of the lesions, over 90%, were de novo disease. No instant restenosis. If there is restenosis with no stent, that was allowed, but there were a small number of patients. So the primary endpoint was actually looking at the acute procedural success, getting less or equal 30% residual stenosis without any serious complications, you know, defined as uh, mostly flow-limiting dissections, you know, D to F or uh, distal embolization uh, or perforations, you know, after the final treatment. And of course, we always have safety endpoints with those studies, which is the major adverse limb events and post-operative death at 30 days, essentially avoiding TVR or target vessel revascularization or major amputation above the ankle, all-cause death. This is kind of what we have focused on as a safety endpoint at 30 days. The study did have multiple secondary endpoints, you know, as we mentioned, including looking at patency at 6 and 12 months technical success, angiographic complications, uh, clinically driven target lesion revascularization all the way up to one year. But I think it's more interesting also, we've incorporated quality of life assessments, which I think is very important in these studies. And that included the EQ5D5L questionnaire at 30 days, three, six, and 12 months, as well as walking impairment questionnaires. There's a lot of data that is going to be observed in that study. And as we move on, we will have many reports as part of this clinical trial. So very valuable data as far as we're concerned. So one thing I would like to ask you about, this is a very nice summary of the trial, but those below the knee vessels are very complex. Anybody who does peripheral interventions, really twin tackling those below the knee always have to be prepared and have the, the mindset for it. So you get a lot of time where you end up being a true to true lumen versus via dissection. Is there any exclusion criteria if someone is having to try to cross those 100% occlusion when you are into this section? Would that a, an exclusion criteria or did you guys enroll those patients as well? Really, the only exclusion criteria that was pre-specified was the inability to cross uh, total occlusion. Otherwise, uh, it was left up to the operator to decide if they are interluminal, you know, when the lesion is crossed and whether they want to use an IVIS to verify that. And many have done that or whether they uh, just use their own angiographic appearance, or at least when they are doing their procedure, they can sense if they are in a subintimal space and they, they've had some difficulty getting the wire through. But we did not really uh, exclude a whole lot of, in fact, we wanted to be as inclusive as possible. So we have a real world type of reflection to how the laser would be working in all these lesions under all kinds of circumstances. And have you had any alternative access like pedal access or radial access or intergrade access on those patient population? Yeah, a very small number, but yes, we did. And I don't have these numbers exactly with me right now, but yes, we did. We did have some pedal access patients, and this was not an exclusion in the study. Any device complications reported? Yes, and no device-related complications uh, other than what I just mentioned. You know, we had one uh, perforation that was uh, actually very localized and minor and uh, really sealed completely just with a prolonged balloon inflation. There was one, uh, as I said, the distal embolization, we think it's more micro kind of type of debris that resolved just simply with uh, vasodilators. So minimal complications overall with no uh, sequelae, no bad sequelae at all. It's very interesting when, when you talk about laser below the knee, to talk about complication, ease of use. But I think it's something we skipped here, maybe for the audience who are not familiar with this type of laser, 
is it just a one catheter, one size fit all? Is it different sizes? Do you use different sizes for different areas? Can you just talk us about it more and maybe more of a technical perspective? How do you approach below the knee versus femoropalpateal? And what size laser? How do you go up on your frequency? Just a little bit more basic for all of us in the audience to kind of learn from your experience. Yeah, that's a great question. So if we are treating femoropalpateal segments, you know, we're using the larger size catheters, which are the 2.0 and the 2.35 laser, and these seems to work very nicely. And as you know, these particular catheters have also a suction mechanism built into them. So you're aspirating as you are treating. And if you look at, let's say, the IDE study as well as others, but if you look at just the IDE study, there was only one, actually two filters used in the entire trial and there was zero distal embolization. You know, it's just remarkable how effective that suction mechanism was for bulky lesions, you know, above the knee. If you look at the below the knee, the study that we did, as well as others, you know, uh, clearly, again, we see uh, that the catheters used are predominantly the 0.9 and the 1.5 millimeter. And I can tell you that the 0.9 is mostly used in the mid to distal segment of these vessels, and the uh, 1.5 catheter is mostly used in the tibioperineal and the very proximal segment of these vessels. Now, the anterior tibialis artery tend to have a little sharp, if it has a sharper angulation to it, it may be a little bit uh, difficult to get the 1.5 catheter to take that sharp turn. But if that is the case, using the 0.9 is no problem at all, and we've not had any issues with it. Was there a difference in outcomes based on the size a device used? Yeah, the overall acute outcome was very good overall. So it's really hard to pin down differences between the 0.9 and the 1.5 laser when the overall outcome was really very good. You know, the numbers would just not allow us to make any conclusions like that. So more difficult question, again, from more of a practical perspective. So let's say you choose to do the 0.9 or the 1.4 or 1.5. When do you know you're done with laser therapy? Do you, do you go up on your frequency and, and rate all the way to the maximum in every single case? Or just take us through the way, if you're a pathway, your protocol in treating those patients? Yeah, that's a super question, you know, because it, it, our practice evolved a little bit as more data appeared on that device. And initially, we started everybody with the 50 joules, you know, with, because you yeah, have the setup is only 50 or 60 joules. These are your two choices. We start with the 50 joules and typically it takes about two or maybe three runs and a run is defined as going from proximal to distal of the lesion. And uh, normally if you don't encounter any more resistance as you are advancing that catheter and you really should advance it very slowly, usually about one millimeter per second. If you stop meeting significant amount of resistance and you've already done your two or three passes, you know, you're pretty much done with the laser treatment. Now, if you've seen feel like there is significant resistance as you pass the catheter, then most likely you're encountering some significant calcification or very severe fibrocalcific disease. And in that case, you know, we used to raise the uh, fluence to 60, which has helped us crossing these devices. That was kind of the approach, you know, initially. And then more data appeared on the 60 that showed that the 60 has significant capability of actually fracturing deep calcium in those arteries, which we were not very aware of it. But CT analysis of those cases in cadaveric model have shown that even if you go into the vessel and, and you're using the 60 rather than the 50, you're getting the added advantage of a calcium fracture deeper into the vessel, which may very well carry some clinical advantages down the road for drug elution and so forth, and possibly improvement of vessel compliance even more than the 50s. So we're shifting, and I did shift my, my practice right now 
to use a lot more the 60s, particularly when I'm below the knee, when, I'm, when I know there is a lot of fibrocalcific disease. So that's kind of the evolution of what we have done over the years. So any other key takeaway points from the study, Nick, that you can think of? Yeah, I mean, the main primary endpoints of safety and acute procedural results were, were excellent. And that was something that we have wanted to accomplish to demonstrate that. And I think we did. I think the most important thing is the overall long-term out at one year, and we're hoping to see what we have learned so far and how that laser works really translate into a better outcome down the road. I mean, we know that there are a lot of devices coming out you know, for below the knee and how this particular device will be placed among all the other devices kind of would be an interesting question and, and a point of debate among all our endovascular operators. But I can tell you that irrespective, I have a strong feeling that the uh, laser will continue to be an important uh, treatment as a vessel prepping device, uh, whether on its own as a modality of treatment, you know, followed by adjunct balloon angioplasty or as a vessel prepping device prior to some important technology that we are seeing right now, like the bioabsorbable stents, which have shown some significant improvement compared to plain old balloon angioplasty. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Is any further need for equipment advancement and other complementary devices that, that you find helpful in your toolkit for treating CLI like IVL? You mentioned the bioabsorbable scaffolding. There's interesting things like limb flow coming out. Anything you share on that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think we are at a very good time in treating CLI patients below the knee right now. I mean, technology really have evolved quite fast in a short period of time. And that all started also with the alternative access sites like pedal access have helped us significantly crossing total occlusions, which are prevalent in these patients, as you know. Also having a variety of crossing catheters, wires, which are available to us right now made the success rate quite high. Of course, we continue to develop devices, you know, that improve our intraluminal crossing of the lesions. You know, this will always be a nice uh, added advantage to treating these vessels. And uh, that will allow us to continue to use atherectomy when you know your intraluminal and hopefully avoid stenting in territories where you don't want to put a stent in. It's also exciting to see some non-atherectomy devices tackling below the knee lesions right now like the shockwave balloon, you know, for moderate to severe calcium in these arteries. We're currently actually enrolling patients in the shockwave below the knee registry. And that trial is, uh, I can tell you, it's almost done enrolling. And uh, hopefully we'll have some exciting data coming out of this one. We all have seen the LIFE BDK study that was presented at TCT recently, showing that the bioabsorbable serolimus cyst and uh, showed superior outcome to balloon angioplasty really setting a new standard for treating these lesions and staying in line with the concept of leaving the least behind, knowing that these stents at one point in time hopefully will disappear. It would be very interesting to see what type of outcome we can get from the laser combined, as I saw it with the bioresorbable stents as a vessel prepping device. We all know that if you vessel prep your device well, you'd get better stent expansion and opposition and hopefully better outcome down the road. But we don't know that yet. We don't have that data. I think you mentioned the lymph flow. I know when all options, uh, surgical and non-surgical, are exhausted, then obviously deep venous arterialization is going to become important, you know, with the lymph flow system. We already know that from a very nice study, the PROMIS-2 trial, that led to the approval of that technology, and that showed a significant lymph salvage in these patients who had virtually no other options, achieving, I believe, a lymph salvage close to the 75, 76% of these cases, you know, so that is... Uh, a remarkable, uh, you know, finding in people who have lost all hope. So, Nick, thank you so much for that summary. Really, we're going to take advantage of you being on the show with us today. You and your partners have built 
a phenomenal CLI program. And what I got from Yula's comments is you should not tackle those kind of complex patient and complex anatomy and lesions with one hand behind your back with limited equipment. But at the same time, not everybody is privileged and lucky enough to have all of those products in their hand. So if you want to build for the audience, they haven't tackled the CLI, a true CLI, pro- they haven't built a true CLI program. What's your recommendation in terms of how to build a CLI program? I know this is maybe a two-hour talk, but if you can give us a summary of how do you build a good CLI program, what are the, the minimum amount of product you need and what kind of product you should have? And, you know, because we know as physicians, as interventional cardiologists, as a cardiologist, as we see that the amputation can be the last resource, but we know how much affect patients' life, the quality of life, and of course, mortality. So give us from your experience, someone, after you listen to this episode, decide, you know what, I want to take lead and build a CLI program. Just walk us through how to build a successful program and what minimum product you need. Yeah, well, this is, as you said, that could be a two hours discussion, but I'm trying to summarize it very shortly here. Honestly, a CLI program is not a one individual program, as you can imagine. You know, this is a, a team approach, a collaborative effort among uh, multiple uh, specialty, uh, including the endovascular specialist, the vascular surgeon, the vascular ultrasound department, you know, you rely so much on them, podiatrist, wound management, infectious disease expert, and really an, the entire team in the endovascular suite. So having these folks, you know, uh, communicate and talk all the time and discuss uh, various patient unique situations uh, can be extremely helpful to build this program as you really tap on the expertise of all these people, you know, when it comes to limb salvage. I think that really should be the first step. So that means having your administrator buy into your program and understand the importance of a program like this has tremendous implications on not just saving legs, but also saving the lives of of people, which means for them investing enough resources to get you the equipment that you need and the training for your staff that you need to achieve these goals. So if you don't have this administrative buy-in into a program like this, you know, you are going to face some really difficult time building a program successfully because you need resources. You know, as you can imagine, treating these lesions are not a simple thing. You know, it requires long hours. You know, there's a lot of exposure to radiation and as well as contrast. You really need all the tools you need in order to make your procedure successfully in a very timely manner which means you need your crossing catheters, you need your crossing wires, you need some of your atherectomy devices. If you can't have them all, I honestly think, like we discussed, the Aryan laser kind of fits into many of the lesions that we have treated. You know, orbital atherectomy is good to have on board. And the other thing is you do have to have nowadays your your drug-coated balloons, you know, and your drug nuding stents for people who have above-the-knee type of disease because we know the outcome is better and we know patients will have less target lesion revascularization and the chance of them coming back. And we need to keep these people out of the lab as much as possible. And that is amazing to see that the dark cloud over this technology have been lifted recently. And now we can actually use those DCP and DES stent without worrying about long-term mortality, which was really important for us. Again, all this, however, costs money and it costs resources. And again, this is not a program that you can just one day decide to just start this on your own. And it takes some talk to the administrators ahead of time and tell them this is what we want to do. And that's going to take a collaborative effort, you know, to make this occurs and happens. And you need the buy-in. It's really critical. That is really a first step. No, thank you so much for this summary. 
you know, I think with the with the importance of saving limbs and the impact of amputation on patients' lives, I think it's crucial to take every possible pathway before you amputate it. We've seen it in the multidisciplinary teams of TAVR, Aortic, etc. I think something similar to that, I think, should come from all the society coming together and helping all the operator to have it something more of a consensus between SVS and ACC and Sky and SIR. And I think it's important to have something more of an objective and something to guide us all to build a program. And I want to make one more comment about what you mentioned. I think you mentioned it, but I just want to emphasize it as well, is the importance of having a wound specialist in your team because a lot of physicians like myself and yourself, we treat vessels, we treat patients, but for wound management, I mean, that takes weeks, sometimes months of continuous effort once a week, seeing them, changing them, antibiotics. It's extremely important to have someone who's dedicated to that role in addition to the operator himself. But no, thank you so much for that summary. Hopefully the work that you do and all the great work that other operators have been doing to show the importance and the success of this technology below the knee will help us changing the stigma behind below the knee intervention and hopefully improve the patient life and quality of life. It's a great question, Sam, and thank you for very succinctly summarizing that, Nicholas. And one of y'all's fantastic IC colleagues, Zola and Dandu, came on the show. For the audience who wants to take a deeper dive into building a CLI program, he did spend a whole hour talking about it, and that's episode 350 if the audience wants to catch that. Another fantastic practitioner, Zola. Nick, we covered everything in under an hour is amazing. And you were very succinct and very thorough. Is there anything that we left behind? Any final thoughts before we finish up? I mean, we can add just a few things here and just for a couple of minutes only. Just need to make sure that the CLI operators, they really need to keep in mind, you know, that the limb ischemia patients are at risk of dying from cardiovascular diseases, you know, and the strokes and heart attacks. And of course, avoiding amputation is a, an absolutely critical step, you know, in the right direction by revascularization and establishing a good slowdown to the foot. But it's really imperative, you know, that these patients can be managed and continue to be managed very aggressively by quitting smoking, lowering their LDL, you know, managing their uh, hypertension, their diabetes, and ensuring that they are on life-saving drugs, you know, needed to reduce their cardiovascular death and stroke. And we're now very fortunate, you know, really to have a very nice group of pharmacologic agents who are shown to reduce heart outcomes in these patients we know the SGLT2 inhibitors, the oral 10A inhibitors, antiplatelets, statins, PCSK9 inhibitors, and recently likely, you know, joining this trend, maybe the GLP-1 agonists. So I think it's important also to focus on good nutrition advice to these patients, improving their lifestyle and exercising. You know, I mean, the message is really clear. You should treat the patient as a whole and not just the limb. Well said. Great. Yes. Great last words, Nick. Appreciate having you on the show. Sam, thank you so much for co-hosting and bringing some additional insights. Thank you to the audience for listening and we'll, we'll catch you next week. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Sameh. It's great to have you guys both. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang, 
Manisha Naganathanahali, and Mandir Singh Subli. Administrative support provided by Jim Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 